Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. What comes to mind when you think about Christians partnering with government institutions? Well, for many, the idea brings up quick responses about separating church and state. Some are understandably skeptical about how these two worlds could even work together. There's a reason people say not to bring up religion and politics at dinner parties. Well, you throw business in there as well, and you have the recipe for some pretty complex conversations. But Christians aren't called to shy away from complexities. Sometimes we're called into difficult spaces because they might lead to a greater sense of flourishing for more people. That's what happened with our guests, Michael Hall and Tim Hurley. They joined the show today to talk about how Christian organizations can partner with government to advance the common good while sustaining profitable returns for their shareholders. Let's jump in. Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. The spirit of David and the cracks of the walls and the schemes that we are all running. Is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night With storm, our whole house was shaken We have been put here on earth to create Not to mimic what might have happened historically For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes I'm looking for my partners But I tried any bind our ignorance hides We all wind up here together Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories as seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. Hey everyone, all opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guests may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed, and this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This is John Coleman, one of your hosts here with Luke Roush today. And Luke looks like he's at his home in Nashville after a lot of travel. How are you doing today, Luke? I am doing great. And this is an important conversation that I've been looking forward to for a while. It is an important conversation, and we're joined by two extraordinary people. The first is Tim Hurley, who's the executive director of the Movement Foundation, which supports movement schools, among other things, a charter school network that's been building, started in North Carolina, but spreading out around the country. And the second is Michael Hall, who's the VP of Acquisitions at Launch Capital Partners. Good morning, guys. How are y'all? Hey, good morning. Glad to be here. 
Yeah, doing great. Well, today we're going to talk a lot about using private investment to solve public policy problems or public problems, and especially partnering with public organizations in the way that we do that. As we dive in, given that this is such a unique space, Tim, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about the way that you handle that and what Movement Schools and the Movement Foundation do? Sure. So I lead the Movement Foundation, which is a foundation that actually derives its profits from Movement Mortgage. And what we do with those profits, you know, I would say 95% of them is we actually purchase distressed or abandoned real estate that we then retrofit into a beautiful public school space. And we then rent that space out to movement schools, which is a separate 501c3 that uh, takes that space, turns it into a great school to serve um, primarily marginalized communities. And then on the foundation side, we also partner that with the faith-based after school. So after the public school day is done. We have a program called Rise Christian After School that the foundation runs for parents that are interested in that. Yeah, and that's such an interesting model. I know that the integration of faith-based programs on the premises of public schools, but outside of normal instructional hours has been something that's been occurring for decades now. And it's such a neat complement to the day-to-day school life that you all have incorporated. And then building the facilities for these charter schools that run through movement schools is an extraordinary service to those where you do deep partnerships with others. Michael, I know that Launch is a firm that we've talked to here on the FDI podcast before, but maybe to refresh us, Talk to us a little bit about Launch Capital Partners and the work that you do. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we are a impact private equity real estate firm, and we sit at the intersection of the affordable housing crisis and the global migration, forced migration issues. And so uh, we're the largest refugee housing provider in the country. And so we are a for-profit entity. We raise the source capital and acquire naturally occurring affordable housing and preserve that housing and seek to transform that into affordable and hospitable housing to welcome in newly arriving refugees and other people who need affordable housing. And so housing is the largest issue facing refugee resettlement in the United States, with only about 15% of landlords uh, willing to rent to newly arriving refugees. And so we do this in a vertically integrated model. So we manage all our own property through what we call relationship-centered property management. So While most landlords are trying to automate and outsource things to apps, to third-party companies, we're trying to create as much relationship as possible with those new arrivals so that we can help them integrate into a community and meet their physical and spiritual needs. And so we partner with State Department, refugee resettlement agencies, local nonprofits, and then local faith communities and churches who do work in our apartment communities. And I want to dive into this kind of public-private structure where you're not conventional nonprofit, either of you. I mean, Tim, you're coming from more of a nonprofit focus. Michael, you're coming from more of a for-profit focus, but integrated with other entities. Tim, I want to start with you. What made you choose the model that you're pursuing where you do have this blend of almost private sector practices with building and leasing back the schools? You're partnered with government entities. You've also got a conventional uh, fundraiser or philanthropic structure. Talk to us a bit about how that structure works and why you chose to pursue something that wasn't straightforward traditional philanthropy. Yeah, I mean, I spent... You know, 10 years in more straightforward philanthropy, leading Teach for America, where it was, you know, we ran based on the donations of, you know, donors who want to see that advance with some government partnerships. 
you know, on this side, I think the main focus is just the product. You know, my desire has always been to build amazing schools to serve students, especially our most marginalized students who need it most. And thanks to, you know, the governmental structures in place, charter schools are an amazing vehicle for that, where you have sort of the sustainable government funding, but with the opportunity to experiment in new and different ways. And honestly, you know, I don't want to sound smarter than I am. You know, God presented this opportunity. He put the same thing on Casey's heart, who founded Movement Mortgage, of saying, hey, we want to, you know, use the profits from Movement Mortgage to try to build amazing schools for kids. I know for him, he was motivated by some research he saw on private Christian schools serving the marginalized. And what he saw there was they just didn't last. You know, they were started by um, a donor, maybe like him, who funded it for the first 10 or 15 years. But then really inevitably, they ran out of money and the schools had to close. And so he was looking for what's a sustainable model that we can use to pour into kids on the education side. And then also, is there a way to also bring our faith-based you know, beliefs to bear also? And that's how we came into this model. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, Casey has been a part of the FDI community, FDE communities before, founder of Movement Mortgage, but also tells the story of getting involved with movement schools based on his own upbringing in relatively difficult schools in the Washington, D.C. area, et cetera. So I know that both of you have a real passion for that space. Michael, maybe over to you. You guys come from a more explicitly kind of private sector model, but doing a lot of the work that many philanthropies reaching out to immigrants or others might do. Talk to us about why you chose the model you did and how that structure helps you to be more successful. Yeah, I think when we set out to start and build launch, there was obviously an inflection point where we could go as a nonprofit, we could go as a for-profit. And really the decision was made that if we were going to scale and we were going to do this with excellence, that having a for-profit model was necessary just because of the amount of capital that was necessary to get involved in real estate the debt structures that were required, that to go the nonprofit route would really be tying our hands. And so I think at the same time, the model that we have works really well. The refugee resettlement agencies have funding for about three to six months worth of the refugees' rent, which de-risks this public problem. So housing these new arrivals is obviously a very pressing problem for communities all across the country. But the problem's really thin. When you start looking at it, you start looking at the data that immigrants and refugees, you know, they get employed, they start businesses, they become contributing stable members of society. And it is really just that bridge that's necessary to allow them to get to stability. And so this huge problem is really solved by just giving people a chance. And so our partnership doesn't really extend much beyond agreeing to allow them to come in. So we have some alternative underwriting mechanisms that allow a resettlement agency to place a refugee into our apartment communities. But we do all these wraparound services because it undergirds our investment. And so we get asked all the time, well, how much profit are you giving up to do this work with these refugees? And the reality is it's actually our competitive advantage. And so having refugees who are in our communities, who are building a community for themselves, They are much more stable tenants than a typical tenant base. So the turnover rate's a lot lower. And all of these things actually undergird the investment by pushing additional profit straight to the bottom line. Hmm. So I think that one of the things I love about the work that both of you are doing is that it's thinking differently. It's looking at problems that other Christians have looked at and thinking differently about how do you solve them. And part of that is just being open-minded around 
the intersection between, you know, church and state, which are two things that most Christians see as being distinct and should be kept separate. And yet the reality of how you guys have weighted in is actually finding common ground with unmet needs and then building those partnerships. I mean, you've both spoken to it already, but maybe just what are some of the things that you've had to navigate as a believer wading into that partnership? And maybe some things that the agencies that you've partnered with in the government, things that they've had to navigate and that you've had to educate them on in terms of creating this you know, novel solution to a really mm-hmm. significant issue, both in education and then refugee resettlement. Tim, let's start with you. Yeah. You know, I think that's a fun question because, you know, really for my entire career, it's been working in education and government. And throughout this whole time, you know, I've been a, a believer since a young age. And I think about the misconceptions that I think there are. I think even the idea like separation of church and state, you know, as you all know, that the really idea is that the state shouldn't establish a religion. So this concept of, you know, totally separating out church and state, I don't think that's what the law is. And also as a Christian or, or as anybody with a worldview, I don't think there's a way to separate that out. What I do believe, though, is I, I believe deeply that the state shouldn't be establishing a religion. So for me, honestly, you know, my journey through my career has just been this desire to build great schools for kids. And with education, mm-hmm. like that's where the action is. It's in public schools. Like that is a service that we provide. And so as I've gotten deeper and deeper into trying to provide these schools, and as my faith has deepened, they've kind of just come together naturally on a parallel track. And there's been challenges to that sometimes. But for the most part, I think what your listeners might be surprised to hear is sort of the lack of massive impediments to that. And I think people kind of assume that, oh, you know, if I'm a believer, you know, maybe I shouldn't go down this path. But the other thing is, if you look at our public schools, they are filled with believers. If you look at any governmental agency, it is filled with Christians. And so I think sometimes, I think that's where often, I hate to say it, but I think the way the media kind of wants to get there, you know, a good story is the conflict. The good story is not, hey, this group has been working together for years and delivering some really good stuff. Yeah. That's great. You kind of build a boogeyman in the closet and then it acts as a deterrent for people to actually go down a pathway that's not that hard to go down. So I love that. Yeah. Love that, Tim. Uh, Michael. Yeah. No, I think Tim articulated it so well. And I like what he said. He's like, I just want to build good schools. And I think that's really the thing that if you are entering as a believer into kind of this public space, trying to solve these public problems, you really have to be able to solve the problem. And if you can, there's usually a huge amount of desire to partner. I think where government entities really get skittish is there's been disingenuous Christians throughout the years who've come and they want the government to fund their ministry while they're not really trying to solve the problem. So they'll yeah. have cut rate schools or they'll have, you know, substandard housing. And then they're trying to, you know, kind of hoist their Bible study or whatever that is on top of these communities. And so I think we have to do a lot of handholding with the state actors and these other nonprofits of like, we are Christians and we are motivated by our faith, but primarily we're here to solve this problem and that we don't believe in a coerced faith. So we're not going to withhold services. We're not going to not repair someone's apartment or not give someone the same quality education. Yes. That if you're really stepping in and you have the answer and you could solve these problems, you know, in education or affordable housing, there's just not a lot of good scalable solutions in these spaces. And if you have one, there's going to be a long list of people who want to partner if you're doing that genuinely. And so I think that's where we have to balance the kind of evangelicalism 
can shy away from giving people, you know, the cool drink of water and just want to talk about spiritual things. And if you're legitimately trying to solve people's physical problems, people's educational problems, whatever that is, you know, that there's relational bridges that are open. There's after school programming. There's believers who are there who in a relationship of mutuality with the person you're helping, you know, can share their faith, but it's not a bait and switch. I think that's what everyone's afraid of. Yeah. You know, around our firm, so Luke and I work with a faith-based, faith-driven investment firm. And one of our core values is that our excellence is a witness, Michael. It's kind of what you talked about. If you're going to do something as a Christian and kind of make that more prominent, we feel there's almost a higher standard of excellence that you have to hold yourself to because you realize that the quality of your work is reflecting on your faith, right? And it has broader implications. And Tim, I love the way that you summed up the relationship between church and state. People forget that it's not actually a part of the constitution. It actually was originally raised in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to a religious congregation where he was promising them effectively exactly what you articulated, that the state wouldn't impose a religion on others, given that so many people came to the United States or the continent before it was the United States as religious refugees. You've both talked about the ways in which this can work really well. Tim, maybe starting with you, what challenges have you run into in these partnerships? And alongside that, have there been any misconceptions uh, that you've had to dispel about faith-based organizations with some of the government entities with which you've worked? Yeah. I mean, and you know, I'd love to just, I think, relate to that and following up on what Michael said about the approach to the work. So I grew up, uh, I always say I was a school brat. Like some folks are military brats where they move around from the military. So my mom, she started three different schools, you know, private Christian schools. And I grew up in one of hers in Mississippi. And so I was just immersed in the power of what a school could do. And, you know, came out of school, taught back in Mississippi, and then went to law school to study, you know, really specifically educational policy. I thought, hey, maybe there are some policy changes that are going to help us build schools. And during somewhere around that time, I got to see you know, what I would describe as folks who were coming at these problems from, I'd say, a political advocacy space. So folks who were looking to, I think, on ideological basis, drive change. And what I'm excited about this space and talking to some of your investors is what I realized for me is that's not who I am. I'm a builder. Like my passion, I said, there's some laws we could change at the margin about education that might help. But fundamentally, if every law that I thought was good got passed, we would still have the fact that there's not enough great leaders wanting to go into education. And we don't have models that actually are proven to work. So I said, you know what, where I want to spend my time is let's just try to build something that works. And so I think a big problem comes to your question, John, is when people don't understand those different sides. Are you going to drive an ideological position or are you trying to build something great? And I think it's a different temperament, it's a different approach. And so I think like Michael said, a lot of times in government, folks want to know, are you coming to just be a test case? and drive an ideological challenge? Or are you actually trying to build something where we have a shared common ground? And I think, you know, Francis Schaeffer had the concept of co-belligerence, right? Where he said, hey, a co-belligerent is someone who I can work with against a common problem, as distinguished from, say, like a full ally where we agree on everything. And so I think there's a ton of space as a believer, like, you know, I view I'm a co-belligerent against this idea that we are dramatically failing to educate our kids in the way that I think they could be. There's a ton of people who want to jump on that side with me. If it's, I want to drive a specific position on the establishment clause or on freedom of religion, there's a lot less people that want to jump in. So like, what's your primary purpose, I think is something to get clear on at the outset. 
One is, you know, Tim, I think I have a passion for education in my own right. And the other thing I'd say is, as people who believe in the truth of our faith, that faith does have a lot to say about the formation of a person, right? About what can make a person healthy, how that you can help them grow up to flourish. And I do think that without being proselytizing, the values of that can actually inform the way in which you approach the character formation of kids and the way in which you educate them in such a way that hopefully as adults, they can be flourishing individuals, that they can craft lives that are greater, uh, especially in these difficult schools, uh, greater than the circumstances from which they come. I have a friend who always says, talent is universal, opportunity is not, which I know he ripped off from someone else, but... (laughs) But that's deeply true if you believe in the dignity and equality of all people. Michael, how do you see this manifest and what challenges do you run into on the refugee housing side or on housing generally? Yeah, I think we're in a lot less regulated of a space. The bureaucratic state in the space that we play is a lot thinner than it is in education. Uh, And so our touch points are not, I think, as numerous. And so there's not as many friction points. I think one of the largest friction points for us is the fact that we are a for-profit entity. The notion of a business uh, who's trying to maximize profit, trying to engage social service providers to solve a problem, really is just, it doesn't fit a paradigm that a lot of people have. And so it's just taken a lot of time and kind of faithfulness with our hands at the plow of the task uh, to prove that, no, we actually, we're not trying to be a slumlord. We're not trying to just get, you know, a couple months free rent that we actually care about this problem. And so I think a lot of that actually kind of coalesced around Operation Allies Welcome after the fall of Afghanistan. We we ended up kind of sitting on several White House formed task forces, Department of Homeland Security, those type of things. And so it was social service providers, government agencies, and then this for-profit business out of Louisville, Kentucky, that was sitting at the table, you know, and actually being able to participate in that setting, trying to help solve the problem, doing things that didn't undergird our bottom line, but instead were just trying to help these people, help these governmental agencies, these other nonprofits, they feel very hamstrung. And there's oftentimes things that we can do that they can't do. And so being able to use that leeway that we have as this independent entity to actually help them in a lot of ways has really just kind of lowered that bar. And so I think we oftentimes think, you know, we have this great idea, everyone should get on board today. And we undervalue longevity of building deep relationships and a track record of actually doing good work. And it's, you know, Tim and Movement has done that. And I think you're worth trying to do that in our space as well. One of the things that's embedded in both of your answers to that question uh, reminds me of Niebuhr's prayer, which is the famous Lutheran theologian, uh, who prayed, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think that, you know, when you get invited into a forum like the White House to problem solve what to do with all these refugees coming out of Afghanistan, my imagination would take me to just a temptation to get outside of my lane, get outside mm-hmm. of actually the mission that God's called me on, or in your case, you and launch on. And And I think that the discipline and wisdom to be able to stay focused on what the field that God has you playing on and not getting tempted over into some other field or use the opportunity in that forum to try to make a point or try to advance an agenda that's separate from the one that is primary. It takes discipline and wisdom to be able to navigate through that. So I I love that. And actually both of what you guys shared, I want to go back over to 
just the big picture. And as you think about counsel that you would have for other investors or other educators who are maybe called in this direction of public-private partnership, uh, what would be the counsel that you give to them as they embark on their journey? I think when you're trying to solve a problem, you're in this kind of nonprofit governmental space, some of the fundamentals of building a venture kind of get dropped of like, what is the value proposition that you think you're actually bringing to bear here? And to kind of, you know, circle back around of, do you actually have a solution? Is your, whatever your business, your program, whatever you're offering, whatever you have on offer is actually solving the problem people are experiencing, expressing the need for. And so for investors, for you know, venture builders and starters, I would really encourage them of really honing in on, are we actually doing what we say we're doing? Not overselling what you are actually able to do. And are we actually creating value for these entities we're trying to have partnerships with? And so I think it's easy to look at the state as a funding source and not as a customer. And I think in most of these spaces, viewing the nonprofits you're going to be partnering with, the local, state, federal government as you know, kind of a money grab bag you can go and get some grants from, as opposed to a shareholder you're trying to derive value to. And, yeah. and I think that pivot really changes the type of institutions you build. Yeah, I would co-sign everything Michael said. And you know, I think for me, I would recommend I'd say don't start with trying to build a public-private partnership. Start with, you know, what do you desperately want to build? You know, for me, my for 20 years, I've been chasing this idea that we can build dramatically better schools for our most vulnerable kids. And that has driven me down different lines. And I think that's the fun of it, right? It's like what problem does God put on your heart where you're going to make your impact? But then once you have that, follow that wherever it goes. And I do think it often will go back towards some kind of interaction with government. And my exhortation would be instead of coming in sort of with preconceived notions or pushing back on it, hey, maybe just come in open and say, you know, how can we solve this thing together and then see where God takes you on that path? You know, I love this conversation and both of you are operating in areas of such great need, right? On the one hand, Tim, to your point, talent is universal, opportunity is not, and yet the United States public education system is all too often failing kids, right? And there are kids who just don't have equal opportunity in that system. And Michael, obviously, this idea of housing, particularly for immigrant communities and refugee communities, is huge. There is a longstanding record of Christian individuals or institution engaging big problems like this, right? I think of the Red Cross, for example, which has been around forever. I think about Habitat for Humanity, where our friend Jonathan Reckford, uh, Habitat, some people don't realize, is an explicitly Christian organization that's been working at the intersection of these problems from a nonprofit perspective, but leveraging for-profit models for a while. And even at the presidential level, there's been activity here. You know, George W. Bush had the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. As you all look out beyond launch and beyond movement, and have done your work? Are there models that you've seen? Are there organizations that you've seen that you really admired or other entrepreneurs in these spaces that you've admired that have inspired you in the way that you do business so our listeners can go find other models that they can learn from as well as they take on their own problems? And Michael, if you don't mind, I might start with you on that question. Yeah, you know, I think, unfortunately, I think it's a space where the church has shied away in many regards from stepping in and engaging the state as it's trying to solve these problems. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm racking my brain and most of the organizations that 
I'm really inspired by have kind of just done it themselves. And they've almost made a parallel entity because the state's not either partnering or isn't allocating money in those spaces. I think you know, the comment was made of what plays well on the news isn't always what reality is. And so there's just not a lot of state spending on a lot of these really pernicious social problems of homelessness, of education. And so I think most of the groups that I can think of would probably kind of be in this charter school space, that movement that Tim is in. Yeah. Well, and to your point, Michael, I would say just to intersect y'all's worlds for a moment and then come to Tim, I sat on a big public school board for a while with about 100,000 kids in it. And about 8,000 of those kids were refugees, uh, many more immigrants, 8,000 <clears> refugees. It was in DeKalb County, Georgia, which is a very diverse immigration landing spot. Mm-hmm. And the challenges that those kids would face, you know, there were problems with how the schools were structured, but we'd have kids come from war zones where they had lost limbs, where they'd lost their families. They'd come in at 10 or 11 or 12 years old with no prior education, formal education. And the school, I think we had something on the order of 120 languages spoken in the schools. I mean, just unreal And there were structural challenges that would have required community investment, right? No school system is equipped to hire 120 interpreters. No fourth grade teacher is equipped to bring in alongside her other 30 students, someone who's never been to school and who's experienced that kind of trauma. And so there really is, especially in these most challenging problems, I think an opportunity for partnerships that can enhance what can be delivered. Tim, any models that you've looked at in your history? You know, a couple come to mind. I mean, one is actually a group that we work with at our schools. They're a counseling program. It's called C4. And C4 stands for Christ-Centered Community Counseling. Hmm. And so this is a program. It was founded by JB and Melinda Bell, who are both Black. And they looked at their community and felt like, you know, when they looked at where the marriage and family therapist office around the community uh, were placed, they were not in historically Black communities or currently Black communities. So they said, hey, we want to make that available more to Black folks because we believe it's beneficial. So they started to build this program, for-profit counseling program, but with, you know, a very mission-driven focus. And so as we look for ways to care for students at movement schools, they're amazing practitioners. So they actually practice out of movement schools. But when you go see them, say, within the movement school day context, the public school context, they don't counsel from an explicitly Christ-referenced curriculum. Right. So they just give you really good marriage and family therapy counseling. If you say, hey, I'm a believer, I'd like this to be part of it. They're happy to add that in because that's who they are, but they don't have to do it from that perspective. My dad used the same model. He was a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary for 35 years and ran a counseling practice out of that. And he said, hey, you know, I'm going to work from this frame, but if that's not the frame you're in, I'm glad to actually just counsel you with, you know, what he would call the God given methods. And I think the reference in that is, I think, our greatest challenges are being addressed by Christians already. Same thing for public school teachers. If you go into most of the traditional public schools that I work in, it is filled with believers. I think there's a question, I think a little bit about music. Like you remember the, like when I grew up late eighties, early nineties, there was like the Christian music scene, right? And a lot of questionable acts I think got on there because they just like slapped Christian, you know, on that level. But then you look at a band like, you know, I'll date all of us, but right, like you two, where you're like, oh my gosh, this is just an amazing band. You're like, wait, but I think they're believers. And and when you read some of their stuff, like I think they're clearly believers. I think with some of this stuff, it's like, are you okay with more of a YouTube model where you're just delivering amazing services and answers? And hey, and if anybody wants to ask and find out, of course you're a Christian. Or 
does Christian have to be the finding piece, you know, the most out front piece of what you do, or can you let your product serve? And then also say, hey, if you want to know where this comes from, it's my work in serving Christ. But if you're willing to go to the YouTube model, like you are hard pressed to find a social issue that Christians are not already flocking to. Maybe speak, Tim, just because you've shared this with me before, but about the programming that you guys offer for families that opt into the after-school program and movement. Yeah, yeah. so you know, we offer, and this is through the foundation, separate from the schools, just a, a Christian after-school program. My kids were a part of it. They said it was a combination of Sunday school and recess. So the kids come in and we focus on great homework help activities, but then also teaching you know, really just lessons from the Bible. And so it's something we make available for families that want it. And I would say as a family, if you either want a Christian after-school program or you just want good after-school programming for your kids, like a lot of our families may not be explicitly believers, but they're comfortable with it and they know it's a great value program. So I say, hey, you know, go ahead and be a part of it. So that's part of what we offer. One to your point, Tim, you know, what's interesting is the desire for some of those types of programs is, if anything, disproportionate among communities of color and also among less economically advantaged communities. I mean, that's where you find some of the greatest prevalence, actually, of faith, Christian faith and other types of faith. And there's a real hunger for that, I think, in many of those communities. And I imagine the parents are quite excited that that's an option. You guys probably hear a lot of positive feedback, I would guess. You know, we do. And this also, I'd say that this is the most I ever really talk about the rise Christian after school and movement schools in the same sentence. Because really, in our practical lived out day-to-day lives, they operate separately by design. And also, I think, in accordance with the law. So this, it's interesting because this really is the most, if you were to follow me throughout my week, I'm not talking about them in the same sentence because they actually run as separate entities, which I think is helpful. And for our movement school families, if you ask them, hey, did you know Rise actually is run through the movement foundation? They'd be like, no, because we really do. We just run them as separate operations. Well, guys, this has been a very fulfilling talk. What we're going to do now, I can see Luke getting anxious. His favorite part of the FDI podcast is the lightning round. He will probably ask you about your favorite food in some city at some point, but maybe not. The exciting thing about lightning round, Luke, is we never know where it'll go exactly. We're going to do that. And then just a be forewarned, the last question we always ask folks on the podcast is just what you're learning through scripture right now you'd want to share for others. So we'll hit both of you after the lightning round. But maybe I'll kick it over to my partner in crime here first. Luke, want to dig in. And the point of lightning round, by the way, is 60-second or less answers to questions that are of variable quality, very highly variable quality. So Luke, (laughs) start us off. The best answers are 30 seconds or less, but no pressure. So uh, I want to know what one thing each of you guys do to unwind and rest and just be renewed. I can go. Um, disc golf. It is the choice for the entrepreneurial investor. You should look at the growth numbers on it. It's amazing. Golf is peaked. Ball golf, as I call it. Disc golf is on the rise. If it, even relative pickleball. Would you stand oh, by that? Pick, pick, pickleball wow. is a tough. That's a, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> yeah. Tim, I'm getting a 90s flavor from Tim right now. He was vaguely referencing like DC Talk and Audio Adrenaline how did, earlier. I how you knew I was thinking he was, uh, <laughs> He's talking about disc DC golf talk. now. I was thinking of DC Talk, but I did not say DC Talk. (laughs) Get your members only jacket on. It's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, I love hiking. So if I don't get out in nature in some solitude, at least once a week, I find my mental, spiritual, physical health all suffers dramatically. So hiking, backpacking, that type of stuff. That's awesome. All right. What is something that you do at your job that would surprise people? Michael, why don't we start with you? 
Yeah, I think a lot of people will chat with me or they'll see me at FDI or a Praxis event or something like that and feel like I'm an investor. You know, just this week was crawling around in vacant and abandoned apartment units, stepping through unspeakable filth, trying to evaluate, you know, properties to, to make good buys and reposition them. So still very hands-on, picking up trash, doing that type of stuff. As the parent of four small children, I feel that I'm crawling around in a dilapidated space through unspeakable filth almost every day. So I can yep. absolutely... I got four that. kids, so I just do it 24-7. So. That's right. That's some right. of it I'm paid for, some of it I'm not. Yeah. Tim, what about you? What would surprise people that you do at work? Uh, so last summer, I was following around a snow cone truck while it went to apartment complexes, handing out information about the launch of our newest school. So I was slinging snow cones last summer. That's good. That's good. Uh, Give us one thing that you would say to Christian investors or entrepreneurs who are considering working with the government. One piece of advice, Tim, to you. Uh, Do it. Just do it. (laughs) That's good. That is a lightning round answer. I guess Tim like it. (laughs) I like it. He's got it down. I'd say, yeah, focus on your product. Focus on your offering and be excellent. All right. We got two more lightning round questions, and then we're going to go to the scripture question. I know both of you are very philanthropic guys. Generally, I know you care about causes outside of the ones that you're working on in your full-time work. Is there an organization you'd like to pump up that you think is doing great work that you like to support outside of your day jobs, so to speak? Michael, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, I uh, actually sit on the board of and have worked with for a long time, an organization called Scarlet Hope, and they have locations all across the country, but they reach out to women who are in the sex industry or are being uh, trafficked in some way, shape or form. And Rochelle Starr is an amazing founder and leader, and they're doing some really, really cool and good work in very dark spaces. Yeah, I mean, I would say your local church. You know, I think giving faithfully to your church and asking if you can give more there is a pretty good place to start. Some of our audience members may be wanting to know more, either about movement schools or the RISE program after school, or Michael, you know, some folks may want to know more about uh, refugee housing and, and what options exist for folks. What's the best way for our audience to be able to learn more about your respective organizations, Michael? Yeah, but FDI did a great video that if you want to see kind of high level, you could find that on the FDI YouTube channel. And then on our website, you can fill out a contact form and we'll reach out and be in touch. Yeah, well, if you want to know about the schools, uh, go to movementschools.com. If you want to know about Rise Christian After School, go to Rise Christian After School. And Tim, are there ways for people to get involved in either of those at this point? Or is it, I know you guys are are dominantly funding it independently, but yeah. are there any ways in which people can be involved? I'm so glad you asked that, John. Yes, uh, especially for our Christian after-school program, because that is a place where we do more traditional fundraising. So if you go to the Rise, if you Google, again, Rise Christian after-school, it should come up for you. And there will be a donate link. If it's not up there now, it'll be up there by the time this comes out. Excellent. A forcing (laughs) mechanism. All right. You guys have been so great. Let's conclude with the question about scripture. And Tim, I'll start with you. What is God teaching you through scripture right now that you'd like to share with others? Yeah. um, So there's an app actually, it's called the Dwell app. Have y'all heard of the Dwell app? So this is one I would, a free plug. It's a, you can listen to the Bible on audio. It's incredibly well done, but I've been driving a lot. So I was listening to the book of Job. Book of Job, it takes four hours to listen to it. And 75% of that, so three of the four hours, are Job's friends giving him terrible advice. (laughs) Sitting there saying, Job, will you just fess up to what you did before God? Like, just admit it, or you got to do this or that. And so 
I wonder, like, why did God choose to make 75% of it terrible advice mm. from friends? But my takeaway, because I've had a lot of friends go through some tough stuff recently, is like, I'm just trying not to be that guy. I'm mm. trying not to be Job's friend, trying to like spiritualize and explain something I don't understand and be more just the person that, that sits with them and says, I'm so sorry this happened. Mm. That's awesome. That's good. Yeah, I think, you know, as I've journeyed with faith-driven investors and other entrepreneurs and venture founders, I'm just continually saddened by watching some of them kind of grow weary in doing good. And so Hebrews 10, 24 has really been resting on me. That is, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together. And I just, that's really, I think, resonated with me in this season of life. And I love that it's so evocative of let's provoke each other, let's pester each other, let's let's stir up each other to love well and to do good things. That's awesome. Michael Hall, Tim Hurley, we are uh, grateful for your presence on the uh, podcast today. We appreciate the example that you guys are setting and what it looks like to partner with the government and address real systemic issues that exist in our society. So we really appreciate the wisdom that you shared and grateful for you being on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb. 